Today, I would like to welcome Dr. Mako Padiai, who is Director of Pulmonary Pathology at the Cleveland Clinic, a fellowship-trained pulmonary pathologist and author of a textbook on non-neoplastic lung pathology. Prior to joining the Cleveland Clinic, he was a general surgical pathologist and part of the pathology faculty at SUNY Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, for six years. He, uh, from my perspective, is also an excellent source of information online with an excellent informative video he recently posted and also a great Twitter feed, um, both of which can be found in the show notes. So before we get to the questions today, I just want to briefly uh, summarize recent news. As of 1.30 today, there are approximately 1.4 million cases of the novel coronavirus worldwide with approximately 386,000 cases in the United States, which is the world leader in the number of cases. New York is the state with the most confirmed cases at approximately 386,000. In honor of our guest, I looked up the data for Ohio, which has 4,450 confirmed cases and compared to my state of Rhode Island, which has 1,082. Nationwide, approximately 12,000 deaths have been attributed to the novel coronavirus. Widespread testing is not yet available nationwide, but signs that testing is increasing are being noted. Today, we're going to pivot from testing, however, to discuss the pathology of COVID-19, the respiratory syndrome caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus in severe cases. First, let's get to know today's guest a bit with some general questions. The first being, uh, tell us a little or a lot about your background and how you came to work where you do. So thank you for having me, uh, Natalie. That's a very generous um, introduction. I am actually from... um, Originally from India, as you can tell, I'm I'm from I was born in New Delhi, raised there. I went to medical school there um, at the University of Delhi at a place called Maulana Azad Medical College, and then I did my pathology residency there as well mm-hmm. at an institute called the All India Institute of Medical Sciences. So that's the equivalent to sort of an APCP mm-hmm. residency here. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came here, and uh, I don't know if you know, but like foreign. Um, graduates, medical graduates are required to then repeat their residency here. Um, So I did it again. I did it at the State University of New York in Syracuse, New York, which is where I met um, Dr. Kadzenstein, Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Annalise Kadzenstein, Mm -hmm. who was one of my faculty at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And although I was initially interested in heme path and and GI pathology, I actually did my MD thesis on celiac disease. Mm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you know, funny how, how life turns out. Yeah. I, I thought I would do either GI or heme, but when I met Dr. Katzenstein, I was just blown away by, you know, her just just her intellect and um, just the sheer genius of what, what she did. And I was very impressed. I wanted to work with her. And then that sort of brought me onto the lung pathology okay. uh, field, in, into that field. And then subsequently after my residency, I went to Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, uh-huh. for a pulmonary pathology fellowship. Mm-hmm. And then I was recruited back to Syracuse to work um, as faculty there. So this was general surgical path. Mm-hmm. Um, so I worked with Dr. Kazenstein all the way from, I think, 2007 to, I'm guessing, about 2012, 13. And at that point, then I moved to Cleveland, where, and I, I've been here ever since. The difference here has been that I'm completely subspecialized here. So I only do lung pathology in Cleveland, which is very, um, you know, unusual nowadays to have a 
pure lung pathologist because lung pathology volumes in most places are not high enough to support a pure lung pathology service. Right. And are you doing just histologic lung? Are you doing any cytopathology with lung or just? um... I do only. I I used to do cytopath in my Mm -hmm. previous uh, Mm -hmm. place, believe it or not, even though I'm not cyto trained. But uh, in my current job, I do only histologic lung. In fact, there are three full-time lung pathologists in our service. Oh, my. That you who do only lung pathology. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really busy, high volume. Yeah. Lung yeah. I, I will say anecdotally with your comment about having to repeat your residency, I have worked with a lot of residents um, over my time, having done th- three years of fellowship. Um, and I will say a lot of the residents who were, I think my favorite residents were people who were repeating their residency here. So for what that's worth, but um, they tend to be, because yeah. they've already done everything and they already know everything. It's great. <laughs> It's a great deal for for uh, faculty, so uh, not such a great deal for you, unfortunately. Um, that's very interesting about about the lung volumes. I hadn't thought about that. Um, uh, the next question I have for you is: um, When is the first time you remember hearing about uh, the novel coronavirus? What was the source, and how did you feel at the time? Yeah, interesting question. Let me think back to I. I know at least um, around the time of the USCAP. Mm-hmm. meeting, which I think was, when was that? I, I think uh, right beginning of February? Very, very end of February. So it's, it's like the end of February to the beginning of March. Yeah. Yes. And I I am almost certain I'd heard of it before that, you know, off just off of the news. Mm-hmm. And I can't even remember what my reaction was. Certainly was not one of concern or panic. I, ha- I have to admit, you know, somewhat, I'm embarrassed to admit that now. It's just, but, uh, yeah, it's funny yeah. how I, I feel like it kind of crept up on on most people. I will say I actually heard about it. I actually heard about it before you scap, but I thought that's over there. It didn't even occur to me that it would come here. And then when it started sort of trickling here around USCAP because I have an underlying medical condition, I actually ended up not going to USCAP because I didn't want to get stuck yeah. there. It was when they were quarantining those people on that boat. Do you remember that? Yeah. And I thought, mm-hmm. I thought, what if yeah. I get stuck in quarantine? I can't get home to my family. So I didn't go. But I think I'm one of the only people I think I tend to overreact about things. But that's very interesting, especially since you're a lung pathologist. But um, yeah, now yeah. actually that bugs my memory, too. Yeah. Uh, now that you mentioned the the cruise ship, because I remember having a discussion with my wife, who, who's a cytopathologist, by the way. Oh, so she's the great family. Yeah. Um, so she is. Um, she, so we were supposed to go for a Disney cruise around this time in in March, oh. and I remember hearing about that and and telling her, well, you know, I really don't think this is going to be a great idea to be stuck on a ship yeah. while we're, it, you know, and it wasn't a pandemic at that point; it was just beginning. Right. And um, I told her, well, I don't think it's a good idea. And she was, she's really a cruise person and I'm a non-cruise person. Mm. So we were kind of pushing our uh, agendas there. Right, <laughs> right, right. I'm, I'm just wondering if anybody who makes it through this nonsense is going to feel good about going on a cruise again. But that's probably, you know, a matter for another day. <laughs> but I can't imagine yeah. wanting to myself. Um, so today is April 7th. How has your opinion changed since that first time? And was there one moment when you recall sort of having an aha moment where your attitude about this subject changed? Yeah, it's changed big time. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I really, in the beginning of it, I, I it barely registered for me. You know, when, when it was going on in China, uh, I, I really didn't. I, I have to admit, I, I didn't really register how serious it was. And then when it started happening uh, here... 
I think I, I again I didn't register when it was just a few cases. Um, I think the biggest thing for me was when um, uh, Italy started to go really bad. Uh, for me, that was really a game changer in terms of um, realizing the seriousness of it because I started seeing posts from people and, and started reading about in uh, news organizations how overwhelmed the medical system was getting. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I, it became clear that this is um, serious. But I, I have to admit that, that that's really far into the, pretty far into the pandemic that I realized it was right. Uh, yeah. I, I had a similar experience. I read a Twitter thread from, I think, an intensive care doc from Italy and mm. just about how overwhelmed and he was begging for help. And I was thinking, oh my goodness, this is much worse than I thought it was. So yeah, that's funny how Italy kind of woke um, some people up. So um, has how has your work changed during this time? Have your caseloads changed? What about interactions with colleagues and other healthcare practitioners? And has your hospital put any policies in place to limit the spread or protect healthcare workers? Yes, everything's changed, Natalie. Mm-hmm. Everything mm-hmm. changed. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually talking to you from home now mm-hmm. because we are currently in a system where we are trying to minimize the number of people that actually have to be at work mm-hmm. at one time. So we are trying to run our services with the least amount of personnel possible. Um, uh, so we have, for example, we have three lung pathologists. Only one is at, at on service at a time. The other two are at home. Mm-hmm. And then we are rotating every week. So, you know, every person gets to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, our volumes have dropped. Uh, interestingly, our in-house volumes have dropped significantly. I think everybody's have because elective surgeries have been canceled in most places mm-hmm. or have been have, have been significantly decreased. Um, there are still some lung cancer surgeries going on. I mean, some of them are really life-threatening, so you have to do them. Yes. Yeah. Um, so those are going on. I think some services, for example, are still have high volumes. For example, breast at our institution still has high volumes. Lung is relatively lower. Um, but overall, the volumes have gone down significantly in-house. Interestingly, the consult volumes have gone up. And I don't quite understand why that's happening, why people are sending us more cases. But uh, that's going on right now. Yeah, maybe everyone is down people. They don't have anyone to show things to. So every- yes. <laughs> so you're, yes, you're their colleague now. You're their coworker. <laughs> right. So that's happening. And I'm really, ha- I'm ha- I mean, we are all happy to help people from mm-hmm. any other institution. And then uh, the other big thing that's happened is everything has gone virtual in terms of meetings. You know, there's no in- in-person meetings at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I, wor- I worked with a resident last week. And we stopped doing in-person sign out. So the you know, we would um she would be at her cubicle, I would be at my in my office, and we were um showing cases to each other over Skype. Oh my, that's very yeah. interesting. I was very yeah. interesting. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the cons I know that this will all go away and get better, but the concept of not being able to do, you know, double scope sign out as a pathology trainee, it's so foreign. Yes. I mean, but we all have to adapt, but it's so yes. Skype. That's wonderful. Yes. The other thing that's changed is mm-hmm. our uh, multidisciplinary conferences, you know, are still going on. Mm-hmm. So, for example, we do interstitial lung disease, multidisciplinary conference every week. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody's um, on uh, Skype or WebEx or Zoom or whatever we use for that particular week. Mm-hmm. And so all my colleagues, the pulmonologists are all in their offices. The radiologist is in their office or in the basement, wherever they're showing the CT from. Mm-hmm. I'm in my office. I actually like it this way, not because I don't like to be uh, close to them, yeah. <laughs> but because 
But because I have ready access to my desktop, I can show all the images I want to. Mm-hmm. The slides are right there. You know, I don't have to fire up a microscope. I don't have to travel anywhere. So we are actually, um, we have just submitted a manuscript to the Archives of Pathology. Oh. Um, yeah, okay. uh, me and um, uh, Sarah Jayan, Kamran, Mirza, a lot of people who are on Twitter and use these tools daily. Great. We've please um, put out there a guide for other people who are wondering how to do this for all the virtual tools that are available to you uh, to adapt in the new kind of virtual world. Yeah. So that's going to be in print soon, uh, out in at least out online soon, hopefully. So at the multidisciplinary tumor boards, as a pathologist, you can show a slide from your scope through the camera onto your desktop, and then everyone at the tumor board can see it virtually? Is that what you're doing? Exactly. And you, oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Because I know, I know at my old job, and I know some colleagues who have to take pictures and put them in a PowerPoint, which is so labor intensive. But if you can do yes. live slides, that's that's really great. Yeah. yeah. And can I mention two more things, Natalie? I yeah, just, yeah. you know, as we're yeah. doing it, I realized there's some other very cool things you can do now, now that you can sit at your own computer and do it. Uh-huh. So you can so for example, we have we have a whole slide imaging capability, right? We do do it for mm-hmm. um um, sorry, I got uh, logged out for a second. So we have whole slide imaging capability. Um, so I can scan a whole slide image onto you know our system. Uh-huh. Then as I share my desktop for my clinical colleagues, I can show them a whole slide imaging um, image. And then I can zoom up and down and actually annotate the picture while it's on the screen. Oh, like a play-by-play in a sports show. Like you can draw yes. little circles. Oh, that's cool. around it and all that stuff. It's <laughs> very, very cool. Much cooler than you can actually do in person there. That's great. That's great. Yeah, we do that for consult cases. I hadn't thought about using that for just general. That's a good idea. Good, good mm-hmm. tips. Yeah. Um, so what are you hearing from other healthcare providers in your daily practice about COVID-19? How are they feeling and handling this time? Um, well, I can tell you, so I'll sort of break it up into pathologists and clinicians. Mm -hmm. Okay. So pathologists, um, I think are trying to adapt to their new role. Um, you know, all the things you mentioned, so the, just the sort of mental change that it takes to stop your in-person meetings, your consensus conferences, your one-on-one signouts, your multidiscipline, all the stuff that you had to do in person, you have to shift now to virtual. We're adapting to that. And you know, there's people who adapt quickly and some who don't, mm-hmm. you know, or, mm-hmm. or will never do. They will never do. They'll have to be dragged, kicking and screaming yes. into yes. the new world. Um, but some people are really enthusiastically uh, ad- adapting it, which is fantastic. You know, how quickly people have mm-hmm. moved to that. Uh, so pathologists are, are adapting to that. They're adapting to the fact that we have to stay at home for some of us. You know, it's just very disconcerting to to stay at home when there's a pandemic going on, but we, it, it helps, you know, society at large, if you can minimize your service, um, the people who are on service take on extra burden. That's a, 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 a um, you know, extra, extra problem. One thing I'll mention is there's a very interesting thing that might happen soon, which I hope doesn't happen is we are preparing in our hospital for a surge, you know, just the way every country and state has a, having their surge. Yes. So we are preparing for a surge in our state and in our hospital. And part of the surge planning, which I think is a fantastic move from from leadership, very forward thinking, is that we are thinking of a labor pool where 
pathologists and every other department in the hospital. So anesthesiologists, dermatologists, you know, you name it, everybody will be involved in a labor pool that they, that can help clinicians on the, on the, on the floor, you know? Mm -hmm. So, so for example, let's take my service. There's one person signing out. Let's say it's me during the surge. So I'm signing out at my scope. The other two pathologists in my group will be available for the labor pool. And so if they have to go and help out on the floors, talk to patients' families, fill out medical charts, you know, whatever else they can help out with, Mm -hmm. they'll be available for that. So they are, they join the sort of clinical helpers. They become helpers on the clinical side. So I I think that's a major um, kind of shift for the role of pathologists in this um, pandemic. I agree. Although I've, I've talked to a bunch of colleagues about this because I personally, you know, with my underlying medical condition and the shortages of PPE, I mean, there's just so much stuff going on at the same time. I wonder what is the best use of a pathologist? That kind of thing sounds very helpful. But in terms of me going into an ICU and actually operating a ventilator, I hope it does not come to the point where I am the most qualified person to do that because that would not be good for patients. But, you know, um, I have a friend who's cross-training to work in the laboratory that she manages, actually, you know, signing out blood products in case the workers in the lab get sick because I've heard of that happening places. So I think everyone's approaching it differently, but it's a time where I think we all have to think about what our strengths are and how we can help out. Um, and, and as I think about pathology and maybe this is different because you did your medical training in another country as pathologists, we're one of the only specialties that doesn't do any clinical work in residency. Um, I can't think of another residency where you don't even have a transitional year or an intern year. We just go straight into pathology. So for, for most of us, it's been a long time since we've done any clinical work. You know, there are very few pathology subspecialties where you see patients. I could think maybe blood banking, some of the people who do apheresis or cytopathology, people who do FNAs, but it's pretty rare to have regular patient contact as a pathologist, don't you think? Yes. Yeah. No, those, those are great points. So let me just address them one by one, because yeah. I think they're, they're all great points. Yeah. So first of all, you know, uh, um, with regard to your underlying condition. Yeah. So first of all, people with underlying conditions should be at the bottom of the labor pool. So they should never be exposed to this. In my opinion, you know, if you have an immunosuppression or a chronic disease mm-hmm. and there are 50 pathologists in your department or 15 or whatever, mm-hmm. You should be at the bottom of the pool. Mm-hmm. Same, same with you know people who are elderly or you, you know just they just should be at the bottom of the pool mm-hmm. and hopefully never never utilize. So in in our department, for example, there's a close to seventy I think surgical pathologists. Wow, I know it's yeah. it really is. So you know they've made the labor pool so that the people who are signing out who are elderly who who might have a, a chronic condition are at the bottom and will probably never be called. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the people who are not signing out, who are young and healthy, who want to go to do clinical work, who might have some clinical background are at the top of the pool. Mm-hmm. So they will go first. So for just for example, you know, I, I'm not at the top, but um, uh, just before I did pathology in India, I actually skipped that part. I actually did do some medicine. Mm. So I've had I've had a couple of years of med, you know medicine training. It's it's a long time back, but I am actually completely willing to do whatever they ask me to do. <laughs> so there will be there'll be a range of people. You know, some people will be have some background and will be willing. Some people will have no background and won't be willing. So I think there should be 
some flexibility to accommodate everyone's um, sort of where they're coming from on this. Yeah. And I think everyone, like I said, everyone has strengths. I used to draw blood when I was in college. So I I suppose Mm. I could do something like that. Although that doesn't seem to be the primary problem with these patients who are not doing well. So um, it's just a, it's such an interesting conversation to have out loud Mm because I think we're all Mm -hmm. really scared and just want to help. So um, yes, and uh, address the other part, Natalie, because mm-hmm. the, the other part about, you know, it sort of segues from your thing about who wants to do what. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of anxiety, not just among pathologists, but uh, from talking to also clinicians. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of anxiety among all doctors to just throw yourself into essentially a, you know, you're into a cauldron of just disease, you know? Right, <laughs> exactly. That's what you're doing. You're, you're throwing yourself into a cauldron of disease like soldiers throw themselves into a, a war, you know? Mm-hmm. And and some would argue that you don't have your the weapons that you need. So there are people who, again, there's a spectrum. There are people who say, uh, you know, I was trained to be a doctor. This is the one time where I can actually put my money where my mouth is and, and do it, you know, just jump into war and, and contribute. So there are those people. And then there are people at the other end that say, no, no, look, I, I need protection. I need PPE. My kids are small. I have a, somebody who is uh, with a chronic illness at home. You know, so there's a whole range of people even on that right. spectrum. Yeah. So I think that's all, all of their viewpoints are valid. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of giving everybody space to to do what they need to do. And, you know, I mean, I sew, which I never thought would be like a potentially life-saving skill. And I'm not going to claim that I sew well but I'm making masks for all of my friends so that they can go to the grocery store, you know, cause we're, yeah. we're doing universal masking now in Rhode Island. And uh, there's a way you can sew them where you leave a flap and then you can put a piece of a vacuum cleaner bag inside of it. These are things I never thought that I would say out loud. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is, I mean, this is just the time we're living in, but this has been, yeah. such, that's just been such a good discussion. I'm glad we, we talked about that. Um, my next question for you is, um, Though predicting the outcome of the situation is fraught, do you think the practice of medicine will change as a result of the um, SARS-CoV-2 virus? And how do you think it might change? Yes, it will change. I'm not sure that um, it'll change in fundamental ways, but it'll change in, I think, many small ways. One way that I'm almost certain it will change is that, you know, because we are being dragged, kicking and screaming into the virtual era, we're we are using all these, you know, podcasting will become bigger. People who are using um, Zoom and WebEx, you know, Zoom, you've already seen how big it's become. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's going to become a big thing. People who are turning to social media to to learn things, you know, YouTube and, and Twitter and Facebook, those are going to get even bigger than they already are. Um, so many things that were already being used are going to be, sort of turbocharged, you know, virtual tools in, in medicine, mm-hmm. people will realize that many meetings can be done virtually. And now that they've actually tried them, have been forced to try them. I think some people will react to that in a positive way and actually uh, adopt that. Now, this won't be, you know, not for everyone. I'm, sh- I'm, t- I'm sure some people will still hold out. But I think that's one thing that's going to change. The second thing I'm almost certain will change is that because we've been hit with a pandemic once when we weren't prepared everybody's going to have some sort of preparedness plan in the future for for this uh happening I cer- that's going to yeah i certainly sure. hope so that would be terrific to not be caught flat-footed again 
this is pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. terrible. And uh, mm-hmm. I certainly hope that virtual meetings become more popular. I think it is more productive personally. Um, uh, and then my final question before we get into the pulmonary pathology portion is, has this situation affected you personally, like outside of work? And do you feel increased stress? And if so, how do you cope with that? Um, I'd have to say, uh, other than the the changes I already mentioned to you, Natalie, you know, this staying at home for a certain weeks and going to work for certain weeks, you know, just just the change in works uh, schedule. Uh, nothing personal has happened yet. So my family, you know, my my daughters are are young; they're at home and healthy. My wife is uh, working on the same rotating schedule. She's a cytopathologist, so she's also healthy and um, fine. So I and no, you know, in my immediate friends and family, there's nobody who is um, ill. So I'd have to say that nothing major has uh, happened yet. Good. Um, good. Yeah. So that would be the short answer. Good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and now we can move on to the discussion of pulmonary pathology, um, which I sought you out for. I I had seen your video on YouTube, and I reached out to you. Um, for this reason, although the discussion we've already had has been lovely. Um, recent studies of patients, sorry, with COVID-19 found that 50 or 54 patients who died had developed ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, while only nine of the 137 survivors had developed that syndrome. Can you talk a little bit about ARDS and the significance of those findings? Yeah, of course. Uh, first of all, thank you for reaching out to me, Natalie. If, I'm, I would like to say right here that you're doing a great job to have a podcast that that focuses on pathology. I, I think this is going to be very big in the future. And so thank you for that. And thank you for reaching out. I me. certainly hope it is. Excellent. Yeah. 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 So, we, let, so I'll talk about ARDS broadly first. Mm-hmm. You know, what most people are, um, at least pathologists are familiar with and, and doctors, is the usual setting of ARDS, which is people who are very severely sick with sepsis, you know, disseminated infection, or people who are very severely sick after a, um, you know, motor vehicle accident or some kind of severe trauma or burns. Uh, those settings are the most, I'd, I'd say, most common or severe infection, as mm-hmm. as I already mentioned with sepsis. Those patients uh, develop for some reason, injury also to their lungs, very severe injury to their lungs. And that very severe injury tends to come on fast, you know, within days. Uh, So it's called acute for that reason. It's acute because it comes on fast. It's characterized by respiratory distress, which means generally patients are very, very short of breath or dyspneic. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that goes along with that is that they have extremely low oxygen levels in the blood. So they're hypoxic. Mm Um, and uh, the third thing that goes along with that is that they have opacities in their lungs and in both lungs. And generally, the classic picture is that both lungs, instead of being black on CT or, or X-ray, are completely whited out mm-hmm. or whited out to a large extent. So there's infiltrates or opacities or consolidation in both lungs diffusely. So if you put those three things together, that's basically the definition of ARDS. Acute onset, uh, you know, severe respiratory distress. Um, and and the CT, chest X-ray CT findings. And so there are criteria for that, clinical criteria. Um, Now, what is also well known about ARDS is that there's a large, large number of possible things that can lead to ARDS, some of which I already mentioned, but some of them are, I I just mentioned in 
interview with the New York Times that I just did, you know, things like inhalants, mm -hmm. like uh, war gases, phosgene, uh, mustard gas. Uh, there are reports of people inhaling large amounts of um, fumes from household bleach. Um, you know, in the vaping ep epidemic, which we wrote about the uh, that just happened and is sort of on a downturn, uh, the people who are using uh, not just the, the regular vaping, but the people who are vaping THC and that was contaminated with vitamin E acetate, mm -hmm. that subset of people who are vaping were at very high risk for developing uh, ARDS. So some of the patients who died in that uh, spell of time actually did develop ARDS. So ARDS is really sort of the end point. Mm -hmm. It's not a disease by itself. It's like the end result of very severe acute injury to the lung from virtually anything, you, you name it, you know, chemotherapy, radiation, mm -hmm. drugs, inhalants, ingestants, infection. Um, and so that's the clinical part of it, you know, and most of the time, most patients who develop ARDS end up on a ventilator. Okay. Um, and in general, traditionally, the, the thought about ARDS has always been that 50% of these patients in general, in the old, older literature, 50% of these patients will die overall. If you consider all etiologies together and lump everything together, mm -hmm. the general number has been 50% of patients will die and 50% will recover. And some of those will recover completely, a small percentage. Others will have various degrees of, you know, um, problems after even after they've recovered. So respiratory problems, psychological problems, memory problems, neurological problems, you know, muscle weakness, there's a whole panoply of things which, you know, an ICU doc would, would be able to give you a better list of that. But there's a whole list of complications long term that uh, result from not only having the injury itself, but being on a ventilator, being in the ICU for such a long time. So there's a lot of recovery problems for people who have had ARDS. And then if you look at the pathology side of that, it's a very well appreciated that when you look at lungs from the people who have died of ARDS, most of them have on pathology a thing called diffuse alveolar damage or DAD. Mm -hmm. And that is characterized by hyaline membranes. Of course, you are those of, those of your audience who are pathologists will know what hyaline membranes are. Yes, yeah, they would classic have autopsy finding is sort of like your, your first month of autopsy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the pathologists in your audience would know what that is, but <laughs> We've sort of tried to simplify it in the New York Times video mm -hmm. for for a lay person, you know, try to understand, try to explain to them what it is. And what the analogy I like most is it sort of looks like a uh, if you think of your room as an air sac or, or an alveolus, you know, the room you're sitting in, mm -hmm. that hyaline membranes are the equivalent of having the walls of the room covered by a really thick layer of paint or mold. Mm -hmm. You know, that would be my analogy for 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 lay people, you right. know, for what that mm -hmm. looks like. Mm -hmm. So that's really um, ARDS in a nutshell for me. ARDS clinically, and then the when when you look at it as a pathologist, it's mostly DAD. Now, one thing I'll mention to you, Natalie, because the, your audience is pathologists. Not all case patients who have clinical who fit the clinical criteria for ARDS. Not all of them have DAD on uh, biopsies or autopsies. So that's an interesting thing that is sort of more nuanced. Mm -hmm. Some people with uh, clinical ARDS actually have different pathologies. So they can have eosinophilic pneumonia mm -hmm. or organizing pneumonia. In the old days, we used to call that boop. Um, <laughs> some people will have just an acute bronchopneumonia, you know, an infectious bronchopneumonia pathology 
So not all of it is DAD, but certainly the vast majority of it is DAD. Right. And uh, how often, well, it seems like most of the COVID patients are coming, at least in the study, were coming out with diffuse alveolar damage. Do you find clinically, since you have such a busy lung service, that there are very many patients who are in the ICU even before COVID-19 who were getting biopsies done in this setting? Or do you find that most of these kinds of lungs that you're looking at are from autopsies? Where do you see most of these? Yeah, so this is really an interesting question, Natalie, which is just um, evolving as we speak. Mm -hmm. So as of today, what is it? April 7th, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. As of today, there is almost nothing in the pathology literature Mm -hmm. on on COVID patients. So there is, uh, I I can summarize it for you because I've just uh, gone through the literature. Um, There are basically two or three studies from China. They're they're essentially case reports, all of them. Mm -hmm. So one of them is a postmortem biopsy from somebody who died of COVID in China. It's a postmortem biopsy, not an autopsy. Right. And that did show diffuse alveolar damage. Okay. It's, I think it's one or two patients. Then there's another report from China on two lobectomies from patients who did not have COVID at the time they had their lobectomy. This was for lung cancer. Hmm. And then interestingly, after they had their lobectomy, they started developing symptoms of COVID. Hmm. And then the doctors went, well, can you look back at the lobectomy and see, was there something in the background lung at that time? Okay. So they describe just some minimal findings, which I don't even know if they are significant. You know, there's a little edema here and chronic inflammation there. So their, you know, their point was that this might be the early findings of COVID, but I'm, I'm, I would take that with a grain of salt. Sure. So that's out in the literature. So there's one, there's another paper that is probably coming out in modern pathology, but it's currently in the bioarchive. So I don't know hmm. if it will be published or not. Um, which is also post-mortem biopsies. I think it's four patients again from China. Hmm. So, so far, there is absolutely nothing published from the United States or Italy or all the rest of the world mm-hmm. on the pathology. Now, I'll give you a heads up. We we have actually seen the first autopsies. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from Oklahoma. Um, somebody from the medical examiner's office from Oklahoma reached out to me. Um, and we uh, they sent me the lung slides, and we have actually written up the first paper. It just got accepted in the American Journal of Clinical Pathology. Congratulations! The yeah. autopsy. Yeah, Thank you. Great. Yeah, so you're the first person I'm telling in public. Woo! You know that this happened. <laughs> yeah. So you have that news. I got a scoop. Uh, I, yeah. You, so that is, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not supposed to reveal, you know, all the details, but um, please look out for that. It's going to come out in yeah. the American Journal of Clinical Pathology soon. Okay. It's already been accepted. And these are autopsies from uh, Oklahoma from two people who actually were found to have COVID post-mortem uh, by post-mortem nasopharyngeal swabs. Holy cannoli. Yeah, that, yes. yeah that's... You know, big, yeah. big deal, then, Natalie, right? Yeah. You can imagine um, because there are people in the, in the forensics community who are going to be exposed to COVID patients mm-hmm. even though they don't know they have COVID. I, that's my concern, and I've done shows already about testing it's sort of like a drumbeat as a pathologist you say like why aren't we testing why aren't we testing because if we know you know the literature is dicey and we're, not, we're probably going to know more a year from now but it seems somewhere between 18 and up percentages of people are asymptomatic so you know you could have those people dying from unrelated causes you could have those people spreading it to people so for so long we were only testing people who had exposure to a known you know positive patient, but we weren't testing very many people. So 
I think there were probably people coming in and out of the hospital for a long time that we didn't know had it. So if I were grossing specimens or doing autopsies, I would act like every specimen had it. But that's just because I don't know if everyone can tell, I tend to be on the cautious side. So I agree. That's that's very interesting from Oklahoma. It's not like you hear about that as a hot spot. So that's very interesting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I also know, you know, I know there have been autopsies that, you know, off of email lists and so forth. I know that autopsies have been done mm-hmm. in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, in New York City, there are several that have been done. But um, I'm not aware of anything that's been published so far. You know, so people are are literally thirsty for this mm-hmm. information to come out. And because, you know, what can happen at least you can have um, two ways that these autopsies might turn out. They might turn out to be all be DAD, which is what is we expect to see. Mm-hmm. And certainly that would be the expected finding. You know, people who are dying of ARDS would be expected to have DAD, in which case it really does not make a significant difference to how we treat these patients because there's really no um, effective therapy for DAD. You know, you ventilate those patients, you hope they'll get better, but there's no you know specific therapy. But what people are hoping for is that there will be other findings that might be reversible. You know, something might be, mm-hmm. uh, some might be... Is, eosinophil related some might be mucus plugs some might be organizing pneumonia who knows what might show up yeah um so we are waiting for other stuff to come out but nothing nothing is out there yet yeah and my guess is that we'll see a lot of stuff that will be difficult to tell whether that's really covid related or other things happening in those patients you know right but certainly if you're mm-hmm. positive for covid you could be dying of something else yeah that yeah that's unrelated or superimposed exactly and i i mean one of the things that i don't even know how to approach but the i remember when the data came out from china i had a friend who was trying to plan a trip to korea at the right around this time and obviously she did not end up going but um she was combing through the data with me and she was we were noticing that the men were dying more often than the women and she said well more men in china probably smoke than compared to women but then in italy they're seeing the same pattern i think in spain they're seeing the same pattern that's another question i have why are men dying more than women what what is that? What's going on there? Because it, it's not just they. I think they've been controlling for smoking history. So I think there's a lot of stuff we don't know yet. That'll all be, hopefully, yes. yeah. Hopefully, we have Can a lot. Another thing, Natalie, about the autopsy yeah. uh, angle is mm-hmm. one thing that is going to be very um, interesting is whether these patients develop myocarditis towards the end of life. Because it's some people have noticed in the clinical literature mm-hmm. that uh, a subset of patients, not all of them, mm-hmm. but a subset of patients. Um, with fatal outcomes or who get very severely ill or in the ICU develops, um, you know, um, blood tests that that reveal myocardial damage. Right, right. So they are wondering whether there's underlying myocarditis. So that will be, you know, something that autopsy only can answer for sure. Right, you know, right. Is whether underlying myocarditis. And so yeah, and they also, look- yeah, people have been wondering about, you know, the loss of smell, the loss of taste, and whether or mm-hmm. not there's a CNS component to this as well. So hopefully, yeah, autopsy coming to the rescue. That's very interesting. Um, yeah. And uh, along those lines, what role do you think the the patient's immune system is playing in the pathology of the ARDS and possibly DAD? Um, it seems, and this is obviously, I am not an immunologist, um, but that there, some people are pointing to some sort of cytokine storm in, in such that the clinical history or, or the the path that these patients seem to be taking is that they have the initial onset of symptoms, which is my understanding is myalgia and the, you know, um, 
fevers and sort of can't differentiate that from flu or a common cold. And then some patients almost seem to feel better or do better. And then all of the sudden they sort of fall off this cliff of hypoxia and needing to be intubated, the ones who develop the COVID-19. So people think there might be some sort of component of almost the immune system reacting to something. Do you think, is that common in in DAD or ARDS? Or do you think maybe that's just unique to COVID-19? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Natalie. You know, that kind of brings up the um, very interesting pathology of DAD and how it doesn't really square with um, everything that you would think clinically. You know, so clinically, I totally agree. People are thinking of immune reactions, immune storms, you know, the difference between having a cytokine storm and an inflammatory infiltrate, you know, so you could have, for example, high cytokine levels without necessarily having a brisk T-cell lymphocytic response. You know, in other words, you could, your T-cells could be exhausted or depleted, yet you have a cytokine storm for some other reason. So I would point out to you, one interesting thing about DAD is that although there is very severe lung damage by all indicators, right? Patients are extremely sick, they die, and you're seeing DAD is known to be an indicator of lung damage. It's not typically rich in inflammatory cells. That's the very interesting thing that I'd like to point out. You know, you think of a viral infection going down the airway, down into the bronchi, and then down into the alveoli, and everything gets inflamed in its path. But that's not really what you see in, in on pathology, which is very interesting to my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is something that is so, that, that you would expect would cause inflammation, instead causes diffuse alveolar damage, which is not really a very, very rich in, in lymphocytes mm-hmm. or, or any inflammatory cells. There are a few, but it's not striking. You know, it's not like, for example, the lymphocytic infiltrate that you get with pembrolizumab or immune check, checkpoint inhibitors mm-hmm. or with hypersensitivity pneumonitis, you know, just classic lymphocyte heavy responses. That's not what you see in diffuse alveolar damage. That's very interesting. Yeah, that'll be, well, I'll be tuning into your, your article and, and others for sure. Um, I think it'll help us understand, hopefully, and then maybe mm-hmm. that will help, like you said, with treatments. So I think that's where we're all headed. Um, I know we've been talking for a while. It doesn't feel like it, but um, wow. So I usually at the end of my podcast, although uh, with my N of three now, uh, I, I do a section called my final diagnosis where I just sort of sum things up and then I let the guest also sum things up if that's something you want to do, but you can go after me so you have time to think. Um, my, mine about this episode would be that this most, uh, this recent novel virus, which is sweeping through the world is adhering to a known pattern of lung damage, which anecdotally is kind of how I always thought about non-neoplastic lung. It's sort of like multiple diseases. Um, you can make big tents and then there's ways the lung reacts to things. And then you can kind of fit causes underneath them, although many are overlapping. And it seems like this is following perhaps a path that we already know. Um, but it's this path is characterized by a known high rate of complications and a high fatality rate, and that also the host immune system may be playing a role um, in in this poor outcome we're noticing in patients with serious disease manifestations. And like you said, I think we still have a lot to figure out here. So I'll give you the final word. Final word. Yes, I agree with that's really well summarized, Natalie. I, I would, um, you know, just for the future, I would say that because we know that we were wrong in the past, you know, we sort of underplayed it when we first heard about it, all of us to to varying extents. 
Uh, and we changed our mind, right? As the evidence came out, mm-hmm. we are now taking it extremely seriously. I would j- just suggest to people, keep an open mind. Mm-hmm. And as the evidence, you know, as the data comes in more and more, try to stay abreast of new information. And then, you know, you know if, if you learn new things, keep an open mind. That's a really good way to close it. Thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, we we had talked earlier about how both of us are at home with our kids and I didn't hear a peep from either one of us. So I'm going to consider that a success, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Have a good day. Thank you, Natalie. Appreciate it very much. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Stay safe. You too.